Merry Christmas, Harvest Church. It's uh, good to be here with you. My name is Steve Winsett. I'm an associate pastor here. And one of the things we love to say at Harvest is that we are a family of families. And I can't think of any place better to be than with family at Christmas time. I absolutely love Christmas. It's one of my favorite times of year. And one of my favorite Christmas memories is going Christmas tree hunting as a child. Every year, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, my grandfather, we affectionately called him Paul, he would load me and my cousins up in his truck and we would drive out to the coal fields of western Kentucky where he worked. He was a coal miner in the, in, uh, he was a mechanic in the coal mines and we'd drive out there and we'd hunt for Christmas trees. And I can remember as a kid, we'd run through this land that had been once stripped for coal and now it was reclaimed and had fir trees growing all over it. And we'd run from tree to tree saying, hey, Paul, does this one work? And he'd look at us and say, nah, that, that's not going to cut it. And it would seem like forever we'd go from tree to tree to tree. And finally, we would hit a tree and he'd look at us and go, yeah, that one will do. And he'd get out his axe and we would cut down a tree. And then what seemed like an all-day ordeal, by the end of the day, we had three trees, one for my family's house, one for Paul's house, and one for uh, my cousin's house. And we would take them home and uh, drag them into the house. And as I think of that memory, any time I get a smell of a, of a live Christmas tree, and these aren't live, but they're pretty, uh, that's why they're perfectly shaped, they're not live. Uh, anytime I get a smell of a live tree, it just brings back memories. And that's one of my favorite memories was going Christmas tree hunting, but it's also mixed with a bit of sadness. You see, growing up, I didn't go to church as a boy. My grandfather, Paul, came to me and said, hey, I'll tell you what, if you'll go to church with me for one month, if you'll just go to Sunday school every Sunday for one straight month, I'll give you $10. And I said, all right, I'm in, come get me. So he'd come get me, take me to church, and that's how I started going to church. Uh, that's why I'm here today. So I'm, I'm so thankful for this man. He's probably one of the most influential men in my life by far. And uh, yet it was 12 years ago on December 10th that he died. So anytime I think uh, about those memories, there's a bit of sadness there too. Uh, joy and gladness of what was and the beauty of that season, but also a bit of sadness in the fact that it won't be like that again. This joyful patriarch of my family has went to be with Jesus and my boys won't get to see him or meet him on this side of eternity. And that always brings a bit of sadness. And for many of us here, that's what Christmas season's like. There's joy, there's happiness. It's, it's a fun season, but there's also some of those seasons of sadness for what once was and we know won't be again this side of eternity. So uh, I love the traditions. And I assume you do too. I hope you love those Christmas traditions. But when we think about the Christmas tree, isn't it a rather strange tradition? I mean, think about it. We would bring this tree home and we would have to inspect the tree for bugs because we didn't want bugs coming into our house. We had to make sure there were no squirrels or bugs or anything else. And if you've ever, if you've ever written, done real Christmas tree hunting, like where you, you, know, you go out in the woods, you have to shape it and get it the right size and do all this trimming and it seemed like it took forever. And then you drag it into your house you put it on a stand, you make sure it gets enough water, make sure it doesn't shed, and then you put flammable lights on it and hope it doesn't catch on fire. I mean, it's, it's sort of a crazy tradition, isn't it? You ever think, why, why do we do this? Well, back in the 6th century, there was a missionary from England who went to what is present-day Germany. And he got there and he find, found all these German men and they were worshiping this huge oak tree. So he did what any good missionary would do. He came up to the oak tree, got out his axe, and cut down the oak tree. Well, 
the men expected the oak tree gods to strike him dead right there. And when that didn't happen, he stepped up onto the dead tree stump and began to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, these men trusted in Jesus, and sometime later, he came back to the dead tree stump and found growing out of it a fir tree. And he said, that fir tree represents Jesus Christ. He said, out of death came life. Because, see, we were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our sin. We had no way to be made right with God. Yet here comes Jesus to pave a way and to bring out of our death, he brings life. Out of his death, life comes to us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And he said, that tree, that evergreen tree that's growing out of there, it's evergreen year-round. It's evergreenness. Reminds us of the eternity we spend with Christ. The fact that it's triangular shape reminds us of the Trinity. And it's pointing us upward toward heaven where we'll be one day with Christ. So this missionary named Boniface, the tradition started that the fir tree represented Jesus. This man who died on a tree in order to bring life to us. Well, several hundred years later, there was a a German monk who was walking through the woods and as he looked up at the trees in the night sky, this was in December one year, he noticed the fir trees which he knew represented Christ And he saw stars behind him. And he was so struck with the beauty of the moment, he fell to his knees and began to worship Jesus right then and there. Well, he returned home and began to describe the scene to his children, but he couldn't couldn't get the words out. They just couldn't quite come to grasp what he had seen. So he went outside, this monk named Martin Luther. He cut down a, a fir tree, drug it into his house, and literally, in order to get the scene, he put candles all over the tree. And thus began our tradition of bringing trees into our house and putting lights on them. A tree that is meant to remind us of Jesus Christ. I love the Christmas traditions. One of my favorite ones to tell my boys about is the story of St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was born in 270 A.D. in what is present-day Turkey. He uh, was born to a rather wealthy family. And he had such a reputation for passionately loving Jesus that as a young boy, his nickname was the boy bishop. Well, his parents died at a young age, and he took all the wealth he had and began to give it to orphans and widows. He loved to do that in secret. In fact, if he found an orphan who, who didn't have food, he would give them food and a toy. And he made sure he always did it anonymously. He would dress up in disguises. Well, there's one family, this father who had three daughters, and he had no money for a dowry. Now, at this point in time, if, you were, if your daughters were going to get married, you had to have money to pay for them to get married. So like today, they call that a dowry. This father didn't have that, so his daughters were hopeless of getting married. So St. Nicholas climbed up on the roof and dropped gold coins down through the chimney. And tradition has it, it landed in their stockings that were hanging by the fireplace at night. And those girls were able to get married. Eventually, St. Nicholas was thrown into prison under the persecution of the Roman Empire. And he spent many years in prison. During that time in prison, they said he, his, he aged beyond his years. And he came out with white hair and a white beard looking much older than he actually was. He gave all his money away to the point that he had to go raise money so that he could give more away. And today, there are more churches named after St. Nicholas than anybody else on the face of the earth outside of Jesus Christ. Isn't that an interesting thing? This guy so passionately loved Jesus that he gave it all away. He so passionately loved Jesus that he would go and endure persecution in the name of Jesus. 
Well, I could tell you about a lot of our Christmas traditions and how they point us to Jesus all the way from the Christmas wreath to, uh, that reminds us of the crown of thorns Jesus wore and the eternity uh, life that we get through it with the evergreenness of it. But the scene I want us to look at this morning is the greatest gift that God gave us. The scene of the nativity here. And I've got a, a nativity. It's a typical nativity scene here. Many of you may have nativities around your house. Um, I want us this morning, my hope is that as we look at the nativity scene, that we'll just catch a vision of who God really is and what really happened here, and that we will worship Him more fully, be more in love with Him, more in awe of God as a result of what happened here. Well, one, of, uh, one of the Winstead family traditions, uh, I travel quite a bit. I've been to more than, uh, uh, I've been to almost 50 countries around the world, and what I buy my wife when I return home, I always buy her nativities. And I've found nativities in virtually every country on the face of the earth, and they're quite interesting. I want to show you a few of them. Here's uh, one. This one is from Germany. And there you see sort of a stoic, uh, peaceful, representing the uh, holiness and the purity of Christ. Uh, i got another one up here. This one's from Brazil. It's so colorful, you almost have to turn your eyes away from it. I mean, you can't even tell what's going on there. It's so busy. They are having a Brazilian carnival because Jesus has been born. They are celebrating the birth of Jesus, emphasizing, man, this is worth celebrating. Next, I have one that I got in Africa. Here they are under an African hut, uh, worshiping the baby Jesus. Uh, another one I have uh, here, this is, um, this is from Holland. They just could not help but put a windmill in the nativity somehow. They had to get it in there. So from Holland, you got the windmill with an with a evergreen tree there. Uh, next, this one, um, well, this one's just quite interesting. My boys like to play with this one. You got baby Jesus with quite the hairdo there. And uh, this one is from, uh, interestingly enough, Nicaragua. So um, now here, the, yeah, that one's from Nicaragua. Here, this next one. It's from Bethlehem, uh, where Jesus was born, and it's carved out of olive wood that they, uh, that they found right around Shepherd's Field, hand-carved, so pretty cool, representing the holiness of Christ. The next one, this is from the good old U.S. of A., a little bit of plasticky feel to it and some materials and different things. Um, I show you all those for a reason, because when we look at these nativities, we see what I found is people all over the world are looking to this scene saying, what happened? What went on? What's going on here? People all over the world are asking that question. And this morning, my hope is that we can just venture into this scene, get a little bit of the sights, the smells, the feel of what's going on here, and see what God is doing. So we're going to look in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 15. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is what's commonly referred to as the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 15. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the world uh, should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judah to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And for unto you is born this day in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Here in this first verse, we see a man named Caesar Augustus. Now, I want to give you a little bit of what the world looked like then. At this point in time, the Roman Empire ruled the world. They ruled from Britain all the way to India. And the Roman Empire was ruled by a series of Caesars. The first one being a man named Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar ruled, and when he died, a fight broke out among his descendants as to who would be the next Caesar. Well, his adopted son, named Octavius, came out on top. And in the year 17 BC, Octavius and many saw a shooting star going through the sky. And they said that shooting star represents Julius Caesar going to heaven to take his role, his spot beside Zeus as God. And Octavius said, therefore I'm the son of God. And the parliament of Rome declared this guy named Octavius, who had his name changed to Caesar Augustus, they declared him to be God here on earth. They said he's the son of God, he is God incarnate. And they built temples all over Rome to the god Caesar Augustus. People would worship him and offer sacrifices at these temples to Caesar Augustus. They'd build monuments telling of his great feats. The money that they had would be printed with his face on it, and on it it would say, Caesar is God. So this was the the belief of the day that this man, Caesar Augustus, was God. And they said, Caesar has come to bring us peace. Caesar's brought peace on earth. Well, here's the way Caesar brought peace. He had a large army, and his army would march into a city, and they would say, you can either join us, or we'll enslave you, or we'll kill you. You decide, basically. So most people, when they saw the size and the might and the strength of the Roman army, they just said, we'll join. So it was a forced type of peace, this thing called the Pax Romana that they had going on in that day, and Caesar Augustus is set up here. So this guy who the world declared to be God, who they believed in the Roman Empire was God, is set up here as ruling. Now in verse 2 we see he has a registration. uh, And Quirinius is governor over Syria where Galilee area is. And in verse 3 it says, All went to be registered, each to his own town. Now the Jewish people, it's a very dark day for the Jewish people. 
Whenever they are numbered among the Roman Empire, it's a sad day. And here's what's going on. Everybody had been given land. If you were a Jewish family, way back in the book of Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, Joshua divided the land among the 12 tribes, and every family got land. And the way this was to work is if you were a father, when you gave birth to a firstborn son, he would inherit the land. So the land was passed down from firstborn to firstborn to firstborn. Well, over the course of 1,400 years, nearly 1,400 years that have occurred between Joshua and what we're reading about today, the land of Israel had been conquered, they had been defeated, they had been taken over, and as a result... Everybody had lost their land, or many had. So this guy named Joseph, we're going to see he's not living in his family land. People are going to have to go back there to do the registration so that Caesar can count how many people he has. Now, why does Caesar want to count the number of people he has? Because he's got an army. And he keeps his power by having a huge, huge, strong army. And he's got to know how many people he has in his empire so he knows how much taxes he needs to collect to keep that army well-fed and well-trained and happy. Romans paid their soldiers very well. So he wants to keep them happy and keep in his business so that he can keep his forced peace going. Now, at this time, they said the people living in Israel, the Jewish people, were taxed anywhere between 70 and 90% of their income. Think about that. Because they paid taxes to Rome. And not only did they pay taxes to Rome, but they paid taxes also to the Jewish leadership, the temple tax. So people are being taxed brutally. It's a tough economic season. And in verse 4, it says this, And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and lineage of David. Here's Joseph. This guy who has had to leave his family land in Bethlehem because it's been lost somewhere along the way, and he has moved to this small city on a hill called Nazareth. Nazareth had 15 to 20 families living there, most believe. And it's a small town, and he had to move there because he had to get work as a carpenter. He couldn't go and work the land to provide for his family because he had lost it. This is a tough, desperate economic situation that they're in, and he now has to leave to go back to his family land in Bethlehem, which would have been about a 90-mile journey. Now, it's interesting. He goes back to Bethlehem. You may remember a few months ago, we were in the book of Ruth, and we learned about this man named Boaz and this lady named Ruth, and they lived in Bethlehem. And Boaz raised wheat and barley that would be turned into bread, and Bethlehem, the name literally means house of bread. And there in the house of bread, Jesus was born. And he will say, hey, I'm the bread of life. So we're going to see the bread of life born here in this city called the house of bread that he has to return to. Now in Micah, in the Old Testament, the, the prophet Micah, in Micah 5.2, he said that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So God, in his sovereignty, is orchestrating this guy who claims to be God, Caesar Augustus, to issue a decree to move Joseph and Mary back to Bethlehem so that the Messiah can be born right where he's supposed to be. Notice it's called the city of David. Here's some things that we know about Messiah. He's got to be Jewish. He's got to come from one of the 12 tribes called Judah. And he's also got to come from King David. He's got to be a descendant of King David. And David 
was the uh, great-grandchild of Ruth and Boaz back in the book of Ruth. And David came from Bethlehem. And notice it emphasizes this, that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. He's not just from Bethlehem. He actually descends from King David. So it's quite conceivable that if the kingship of David had never been interrupted in 586 B.C., guess who might be king? Joseph. Joseph could have very well been king. Instead, he's living in Nazareth outside his family's land, working as a carpenter, just struggling to make ends meet. And Joseph returns to the land. Now, it's significant because Messiah had to come from David. And they pass down the kingly line from father, son, father, son, even if it was your adopted father. So Joseph, as Jesus' adopted father, he's still going to pass on that kingly line to Jesus. We also see later that Mary descended from David. So anyway, you put it, Jesus comes from David. Now, it is interesting that Jesus, during his time on earth, he was raised by an adopted father because it's, it's a picture of, of what we are like. You see, we are born children of wrath. That's what Scripture says. We're, people, we're not born children of God, contrary to what people believe. We're born children of wrath, but we can be adopted in to be a child of God. Scripture says this in John 1.12, Yet to those who believed him, to those who received his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. So we all experience adoption into the house of God through Jesus Christ. He made a way for us to come and be adopted into the family. And during Jesus' time on earth, he lived under his adopted father, Joseph. And it says that they came. He was betrothed to be married to Mary. And in verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So they've traveled this 90 miles over difficult terrain. Most said it would take about two weeks to get there. And it appears as soon as they get there, she goes into labor. My wife said, if you've walked 90 miles pregnant, you're going to go into labor as soon as you get to the spot where you're supposed to be. So I'm not arguing with that one. As soon as they get there, they arrive and she's going to labor and they've got to find a place for her to stay and there's no room in the inn. Now, this is our typical scene that we see of what the, inn, of what the manger looked like here with uh, shepherds and uh, Mary and Joseph and animals and people in it. But archaeologists and historians, they, they think it may look a little more like this and uh, possibly. Homes in Jerusalem at this time, people lived on the top floor, and if you had animals, they were on the bottom floor. So it's highly likely they showed up at a house that looked a little more like this and couldn't find a place... Up uh, in the top floors, they had to go stay with the animals. Now, it is interesting. Jesus was born among the animals. He was born with, uh, with sheep around and with animals around. And uh, we see here, listen to this in verse 8. You can, you can take this slide on down. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Who were the first people to get the announcement of Jesus' birth? It's not kings. It's, it's not the political leaders. It's not the strong men of the nation. It is shepherds. In fact, these uh, guys that we call wise men that are often in our nativity scenes, um, if you read Matthew's account, 
Most scholars, and it appears very clear, that they were not actually there the night that Jesus was born. They arrived a little bit later. So I always like to take them and sort of move them off to the side of a nativity scene and try to get the the real picture of who was there, because here's who it was. It was shepherds and it was sheep. Shepherds and sheep and Joseph and Mary, they were the people there. Now, why is that so significant? In the Old Testament, there's a picture of sheep. There's a picture of these sheep being offered as sacrifices. You see this man named Abraham, and he goes to offer his son Isaac. And Isaac asks this question, which is the question of the Old Testament. He says, the fire and the wood are here, Father, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And that's the question of the Old Testament. Where is the lamb that is a sacrifice that is sufficient for the entire world? Because right as Abraham's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, what's God do? He stops him and he sees a ram caught in a thicket and he offers a ram as a sacrifice in his place. And this ram, it's a male lamb. So the lamb dies for one person. Later on in the Exodus, Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. And as he does, he says, if you want to live, your family, kill a lamb, put the blood on the door, and you will live. So the lamb dies for a family. And then later on in Leviticus, we see that they kill a lamb for the sins of the nation. And then the very first words we hear out of John the Baptist's mouth in John chapter 1, verse 29 is this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Born to take away the sins of the world. His sacrifice is sufficient for all who will believe. Sufficient for those who do believe. And here we see that the Lamb of God born right here in this manger with animals all around. He wasn't born in some clean, somewhat sterile hospital or something. He was born in a dirty, difficult place in tough economic times. And the first people to show up are the lowliest of the low, are shepherds. Shepherds were seen as the lowest of the low in this culture. You had to have the testimony of two shepherds to count as one person. Shepherds were with sheep 24-7. They smelled terrible. It was uh, thankless work. And right here in Bethlehem, do you know what they were raising these sheep for? Let me, let me just show you a, a scene real quick. Get one more picture. Uh, this is um, Shepherd's Field there in Bethlehem, where most believe these shepherds would have been. And I don't know if you can see off in the distance, back behind there is Bethlehem. But this is where most believe that these shepherds would have been hanging and where they raised their sheep. And these sheep had a very specific purpose. These sheep were going to be sold to Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem is only about uh, eight or nine miles from Bethlehem. It's not very far. They're very, very, very close together. And what they would do is they would sell these sheep raised in Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem would take them in the temple and they would sell them for the sacrifices each year at Passover. So the sheep in Bethlehem... Their purpose was to be a sheep that was going to be slaughtered for the sins of the nation each year at Passover. Can you see why Jesus was born there? Among the sheep? He's a a lamb of God who's going to be offered as a sacrifice, not for the sins just of the nation, but for the sins of the world. Right there in Jerusalem, some 30 years after this event. He's born. This is his purpose. This is his intent. There's animals running around, and the first people to come are shepherds. You know, God has a special place in his heart for shepherds. 
Shepherds are mentioned more than 100 times throughout the Bible. We see Abel, one of the first men born, was a shepherd. Father Abraham was a shepherd. Isaac, Jacob, all 12 of the patriarchs were shepherds. So every tribe of Israel, when they looked to their patriarch, guess what they saw? A shepherd as their patriarch. Moses spent 40 years as a shepherd. King David was a shepherd. God has a special place in his heart for these guys known as shepherds. Now, interesting, shepherds work with sheep, right? And sheep, uh, they're an interesting animal. Uh, I've been told they're one of the only animals on earth that is defenseless. Uh, If a dog comes and attacks you, he can bite you. He's got sharp teeth and a powerful jaw. Sheep, they have dull bottom teeth, and they don't have teeth on top. They can gum you. Their jaws are weak. They can't do much. Um, A cat can come and claw you. Guess what a sheep can do? They've got dull hooves. They can't do anything to you. Most animals can run away. A porcupine can even stick you. Most animals have some way of defending themselves, right? Not a sheep. They're slow. They can't bite you. (laughs) They don't have claws. Their only hope is a good shepherd to defend them. I've also been told sheep are very stupid. I don't know if somebody gave them an IQ test or what, but they're, they're shown not to be very bright. When a sheep comes up to a fence and it runs into a fence, guess what the sheep does? Keeps pushing. The sheep doesn't have enough sense to back up and go the other way. The shepherd has to come and take the sheep and go back up and go the other way. He just keeps pushing or stands right there and does nothing. When a sheep comes to running water, they are so afraid, even if they're thirsty, they're terrified of the running water, they run away. A sheep doesn't even know when to lie down. The shepherd has to come and help a sheep lie down. These animals, they're not very bright. In fact, they have a herd mentality. Most animals, or a lot of animals like this, you herd them. And what you do is you push them. The the farmer or shepherd will push them. A sheep is led. So the shepherd gets out in front of them and the sheep follow. Guess what the sheep do if they don't have a shepherd? They get in a Big social pack. They're very social animals. and They like to be together. And they'll start to move as a pack. And in fact, they don't even know who's leading. And they'll go wherever. And sheep have been known to go right off the edge of a cliff into their own destruction because they're following the crowd. Sheep are an interesting animal. And you have to have a good shepherd to protect them, a good shepherd to guide them, a good shepherd to love them. In fact, if a sheep keeps roaming off, a shepherd will often take a sheep and break his leg and put that sheep on his shoulders and carry that sheep around on his shoulders until the sheep learns to hear his voice so well that by the time his leg is healed, he puts him down and the sheep never roams off again. If a sheep gets hurt, the shepherd puts him on his shoulders and carries him around. When he's injured, the good shepherd carries him in the moments of injury. In the moments of pain, the good shepherd carries carries him. In the moments of hurt, the good shepherd's there. The good shepherd watches after him. And guess what? Jesus says he is the good shepherd. What's that make us? Sheep. Those stubborn sheep. They come into a fence. You're going the wrong way. Well, I'm not turning around. I'm going to keep on plowing through this. They got that social thing going on. Even if it leads to destruction, everybody else is doing it. I'll join in. Those sheep that don't have enough common sense to really defend themselves. We can't defend ourselves. Our only hope is a good shepherd. We're fearful. We're afraid. We're a lot like these sheep. But you know what's interesting? 
the good shepherd became a sheep. Did you know that? Jesus Christ, who says, I am the good shepherd, he became a sheep and died the death that a sheep deserves, died the death that we deserve in our place. God Almighty became a man and died the death that humans deserved. You see, way back in Genesis, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin entered the world. And ever since then, the, the inclinations of our hearts, the desires of our soul have always been my glory, my fame, my name, my comfort, my security, my wants, my desires. And that's how we go about living life. But God says, you live for my glory, my purposes, my fame. And Jesus comes and makes a way for this holy God who can't be in the presence of sin and sinful people who are living their own way. He makes a way for us to come together through Jesus Christ because Jesus died the death that a sheep deserved. He died the death that humans deserved. And death couldn't hold him down. And out of that death came life like that evergreen tree. Life comes. And so as we look at this scene here, we recognize God is worthy of worship. We recognize that the, the shepherd became a sheep and came and paid the price for us to reconcile us to God. Look at this in verse 9. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you this day is born in the city of David, who is Christ the Lord. In a day when everybody was saying, Caesar's Lord, guess what he's saying? Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord. To these shepherds comes the message that Christ is Lord. And look in verse 14. The angels declare this. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace with whom his favor rests. The angels declare Jesus has come to bring glory to God Almighty. Jesus brings glory to God Almighty by saving sinful people like me and you. People who've rebelled and lived how he wanted to. He comes and he reconciles us back to God the Father. While Caesar is claiming to be Lord, Jesus really is Lord. While Caesar is saying, hey, I brought peace, Jesus truly brought peace because we were at war with God. Romans says that we were enemies with God and that he brings peace between us and God, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a peace that we can't explain that only comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, when we look at this scene, there's a beauty to it. And if we can just take time to reflect on the fact that God entered into humanity. He entered into the world to identify with us, to relate to us, to connect with us, and to pay a price that we couldn't pay. And in doing so, to bring glory to God our Father. Here in the darkest times in Israel, when people were fearful, they were living in tough economic times. Things seemed difficult. And, and for many of you right now, Christmas is a busy time and we often get lost and in the mix of all these different things and all the busyness and all the things that we're trying to find our security and our hope and our value and our worth and all these things in. In the midst of it, I just want us to slow down and worship God and be thankful and celebrate the fact that the shepherd became the sheep. The fact that God entered the world.
We're about to take communion. And what better picture of why God entered the world than communion? That he came to reconcile us to God so that we could have right fellowship with God and commune with him. And there may be some here today when you think about Jesus, you know you haven't trusted him. You're still trying to live your own way and still living in your own sinful desires. We invite you, come trust in Jesus. And there's many of us here who, man, we're just caught up in so many things that we don't have time to slow down and worship God and think, God became a man. He he came for us to reconcile each of us. He came for you to reconcile you to God. What a beautiful picture. And the first people to show up were the lowliest of the low. These shepherds came to worship. I'm going to pray, and afterwards the tables are open. God, we do thank you. We thank you that um, you didn't leave us here hopeless. And God, there are people here today who I know are uh, living in fear. And Lord, I pray that our fear would move to faith, to trusting you, to knowing that you are enough, to to looking at that, that night that you were born and going, praise God that you came here to save sheep like us, that the shepherd became a sheep to connect and identify with us. God, that is good news. So as we come to take communion, I pray that we have fellowship with you. I pray that we recognize that you desire fellowship and connection with us, that you desire for us to be in right standing with you. And that that right standing only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you entered this world 2,000 years ago in a dirty manger among the animals to die the death that those animals have been dying for thousands of years to appease you to to make that sacrifice and that you came as a sacrifice once for all a final sacrifice for the sins of the world Lord we thank you that we who trust you get to experience your grace and goodness through Christ it's in his name we pray Amen